Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today's episode offers an insider's look into a higher ed acquisition that first made news this summer, St. Leo University's acquisition of Marymount California University. This sneak peek is offered courtesy of St. Leo President, Dr. Jeffrey Sinise. Dr. Sinise doesn't fit the stereotype we often associate with a university president, that of a risk-averse academic. His style blends his academic background with a business discipline many believe is in short supply across much of higher education leadership. Either way, Dr. Sinise explains why his business acumen and growth mindset perfectly fit the mission of the school he leads. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Hirsch Steinberg and I'm managing principal with EAB, which means I occasionally have the opportunity to interact with leaders from colleges and universities from across the country. I'm excited as today we're joined by an innovative leader, Dr. Jeffrey Sinise, president of St. Leo University down in Florida. Dr. Sinise, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Lovely to have you. Dr. Sinise, your school has been in the news lately. Uh, mostly because of your pending acquisition of Marymount, California University. And what I thought we might do is talk a little bit about that acquisition, but also talk about what's driving the growth mindset at St. Leo, and maybe even explore your journey through higher ed leadership, just so our audience uh, can better understand how you approach your job. Would that be okay for today? Sounds good. Let's go. All right, terrific. All right, for those who may not be familiar with St. Leo, could you tell our listeners about your institution and what made the Marymount opportunity so attractive as an acquisition partner for St. Leo? Yeah, uh, St. Leo University right now is the largest Benedictine university in the world. We are the fourth largest Catholic university in the country in enrollment. Um, we are a distributed university and in the sense that we have uh, about 19,000 students and most of our students are on ground face-to-face, although we have 9,700 of them uh, studying online. We have a distributed university in the sense that we have centers in five states, so we're used to operating at larger geographies. Uh, We have a centralized uh, way of approaching things. So IT, HR, business services, and advising, financial aid, so forth, are located here out just outside of Tampa on our main campus in St. Leo, Florida. Uh, and then our distributed uh, faculty, as well as advisors and admissions uh, counselors, live throughout the United States and, and in our locations. So very different institution. Our economic impact uh, most recent study just before the pandemic is about a billion dollars a year of impact nationally. Uh, we looked at and have been looking at partners in the Catholic higher ed world, although we're not limiting ourselves to only the Catholic higher ed world. And uh, Marymount California University came up uh, about two years ago. Uh, President Marcotte and I just started a friendly conversation about how we might work together and partner to help them and to help St. Leo. And all these conversations have been about mutual benefit to the institution. Now, he's got an institution of under a thousand students. 
So there's there's a differential clearly there, but there's a mutual interest in delivering a values-based quality Catholic higher education that uh, we both shared. And as as we started to come out of the pandemic, uh, even before starting to come out of it, but it looked like we were coming out of it, uh, President Marcotte and I decided that it was time for us to talk more deeply about uh, how we might work together in partnership. And it ended up being very quickly uh, a conversation about an acquisition. So this this is not a merger in a traditional merger sense. This is more an acquisition where we, prior to the announcement, we signed uh, a legally binding agreement of uh, asset acquisition. So Marymount California University has donated all land, property, buildings, programs, so on and so forth to St. Leo University. What we're waiting for now is regulatory approval from SAC COC. So that that takes a little bit more time than it's taken us. It took us about six months of time to get to the asset uh, acquisition agreement. Both institutions' boards came to that decision. Uh, Both presidents came to that decision. So that's kind of where we are and how we how we got there in very broad terms. Very helpful. Well, and I, I think our listeners would be interested to know mergers, acquisitions of any kind in any industry, they're hard, um, but especially in higher ed. Uh, how, how did you come up with the acquisition as the St. Leo strategy? Like the, the path that allows St. Leo to achieve what it's meant to achieve. Like yeah. the, some would call it a deal thesis, but why yeah. this path versus other paths? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and I, frankly, in my previous institution, I had started thinking about the model. So four years ago, before I came here, uh, I was at a place that had learning centers in different locations, but all generally within the same state or just over the border of that state. And I, I was talking to other uh, higher ed institutions of similar size and said, wouldn't it be advantageous if we could pool things like our admissions operations or IT operations? Wouldn't it be advantageous to us all if we could mutually figure out how to do this? And there's there's models for this too, right? If you look at SEPCHI in southeastern Pennsylvania or the five colleges up in Massachusetts, there there are models of this kind of approach. So I, was, I started thinking about that when I got to St. Leo, and I didn't know much, quite frankly, about St. Leo's breadth and reach. I, I thought, oh, this is ideal for this, and our scale financially as well as uh, across across the country uh, caused me to say, okay, what's next generation of St. Leo? So the one of my predecessors created these learning centers and the relationship with the military. Uh, great job. It was great thinking at the time, but as everybody knows, we've moved more toward online education than than on ground for adult students in particular. Uh, we're seventy five percent adult students. So I, I, I myself and and some of my senior team we started noodling about okay, what's next? And I I came up with this based on I started looking at okay. Who, how many acquisitions have occurred ever? How much time ever? So if you go over to you know, Wikipedia, you can search college and university acquisitions or mergers, you use that uh, term, and it'll, it'll produce historically how many have occurred. 
And then I started really drilling down. I read some uh, Clayton Christensen work as well. And, and Christensen, as many of you know, was talking about this, this great change in higher ed. And I said, huh, are there big Catholic universities doing this across the country? And I couldn't find anybody doing it. And, and, you know, a friend of mine uh, is Paul LeBlanc up there at uh, Southern New Hampshire, and we're working together on a project. And, you know, I I talked to him a little bit about it. And I said, what do you think about this model? He said, it's not something for us, but it makes sense to be thinking about it. So I think a lot of thinking and talking and different sourcing, I, about my third uh, Port of Trustees meeting, I brought in this model called St. Leo 2.0 that shows uh, both fully merged institution, partner institutions, as well as affiliates and uh, even programmatic relationships. So it shows a, a complicated web of uh, this kind of opportunity with mergers and acquisitions really being the the deepest kind of partnership. So we're not thinking only about mergers and acquisitions, although uh, ultimately uh, that that's sort of our interest. There are other partnerships that make as much sense. I'm talking to an institution. I'll give you an example that make that clear with an institution that has an accredited speech pathology program. If you know speech pathology, it takes about six years to get on the accreditation list. So St. Leo's not going to start one of those programs. But through this partner, I can deliver their program on my campus. There's there's a little bit of revenue for me. There's a, a good bit of revenue for them. I have a national network of admissions, which they don't have, that I can bring to the table. So to me, that's a mutual partnership. I get something. They get something. It can be long-term based on that. And then you go all the way to the extreme where uh, Marymount California University was prescient. They knew that their debt and their ability to meet budget and payroll would not be sustainable long-term. They're not in trouble in any way, but they knew it wasn't sustainable because they had been running deficits. They'd been declining in size. The timing was ideal for for an acquisition. Their board chair is uh, CFO for SpaceX. Their vice chair is a local real estate mogul. So they they have, and, and their president in particular is a business guy. So they had a good sense for what they needed to do to preserve Marymount California's um, charism long-term. And, you know, we're only too happy to work together. The, the other thing about that one that works that has worked differently than than other conversations we had is there's been a deep appreciation of each other. Uh, both institutions appreciate each other's culture. Our cultures are similar in a lot of ways, um, but I think it felt good from day one in terms of the conversations. And I think that's a key to any partnership, whether it's programmatic or acquisition merger. Well, you hit on a couple of key points there, and thank you. A little bit of the why now and some of the challenges a lot of institutions and peers are facing. Um, lots of colleges are just trying to hang on right now, but St. Leo clearly has more ambitious plans, but it needs to be the right situation, right place, right time. Um, you, you hit on something a, a moment ago, Dr. Sinise. Um, you can go on Wikipedia. You could... You could see the other mergers, acquisitions, others in higher ed, 
have tried this. We know, um, and we, we're familiar with some. Um, what gives you the confidence, and you kind of hit on it, but what gives you the confidence that you'll be able to capture the synergies, you know, meld those organizational cultures across your respective campuses, uh, now in opposite coasts, but if you were to continue with this model, it's hard. Uh, talk to our listeners a bit about that piece of it. It's not if we're going to continue this model and and continue the approach and conversations. I, I think it's a great question and, and others are trying this. I think what our perspective is, is don't rush it and do it the right way. So we have a firm that's helping us do uh, due diligence. So it allows President Marcotte and I from Marymount, California, allows he and I to have very professional and cordial conversations and honest conversations without getting into the difficult questions about financing and how this or that is gonna work. So I, I think that's a key is to have an outside firm that one trusts that has a an ability to work between both institutions. I think similarly, I have a general counsel's office, so my general counsel could handle this, but not with all the other things that I asked that office to do. So I have an outside firm who's doing all the legal work for us. I've hired a, another firm to do the IT assessment. So not only do they assess complete systems on their side, they assess compatibility with our systems. And then on top of that, I said, okay, I want to go forward plan. I want you to tell us what we do first, second, third, so on and so forth. So those critical components, and there are other situations. So, you know, in, in Florida, we have hurricanes. In California, they have earthquakes. So <laughs> there's a different way you look at physical facilities like uh, Marymount being on the coast and and being in, you know, L.A. area. So there are other firms that we brought in uh, that have better expertise than we do here in Florida uh, help advise us. And, you know, apparently there's a projection on, on earthquakes that is between 200 and 1400 years. And that's sort of how they look at projecting the next one that's going to occur. I, I would have never known that. I learned a lot about uh, earthquake projections at this point. But my point is uh, one needs to pretty clearly bring in expertise to allow the conversation to be mutual, to allow the conversation to continue to be one that melds the cultures as opposed to one that's fighting about small things. And there's a an old saw in higher ed that, you know, we fight the most over the most smallest details. So if you if you take that off the table and uh, Brian and I talk uh, every week uh, my time, five o'clock, his time in the afternoon, right? And it, there's no agenda. We're just talking about, okay, how's things? What's going on here? I know what's going on with, for instance, his director of IT. He knows what's going on with my admissions people. They're, you know, we know our staff's names at this point. Even though, right, we're much bigger than they are, we've got that kind of relationship. And the reason we do that, we have that relationship is, we brought in the right expertise to help us. It sets you up nicely in that regard. And I think it's uh, it's helpful for our listeners to hear from you in this regard. Let me, I want to come back to the acquisition piece, but let's talk a bit about 
you, Dr. Sinise, Jack, <laughs> anyone who spends time with you, and I've spent some time with you over the years, you don't fit the traditional mold of, of the academic leader or the, the typical president. Talk to us about your journey from faculty member at Indiana to your appointment as the 10th president St. Leo, just, just a few years ago. I think it'd be neat for folks to hear that story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan of talking about myself, but I'll, I'll answer your question. Uh, I got into academics because I was interested. I, I, my background is uh, I have a, a PhD from Michigan State in uh, uh, multidisciplinary social science, which means I took econometrics, psychometrics, and social science stats within a, a criminal justice context, but I was really focused on the tools of statistics. So when I got out of Michigan State, I looked for a place that was research-oriented, and that's how I ended up at IU. Um, loved the IU experience. It's a great place, uh, but my family was on the East Coast, and my dad had passed away after I think my second year uh, as a faculty member, I wanted to be closer to my mom and, and help her with uh, uh, closing down my father's business and, and so forth. He owned a construction company. Um, so I moved back east and ended up in at University of Baltimore, which is part of the University of Maryland system and very much an adult oriented institution. Uh, I remember my classes back in the day. Uh, used to have uh, law enforcement officers come in, you know, fully garbed with their uh, their sidearms and and weapons and so forth. Uh, and you know, when I started teaching criminal justice, it was ninety percent men. When I ended teaching, it was fifty fifty men and women. It was really interesting over that time frame. I was very interested in in research, and I, I a couple of areas that I focused on. I was interested in prison and jail population forecasting. I was very interested in modeling uh, correctional officer and police officer decisions with respect to uh, use of force. I had a couple of Department of Justice and Department of Defense grants to study use of force. So I was very enmeshed in uh, the scholar's life, uh, writing referee journals, presenting all across the the globe, quite frankly. I had a Fulbright in um, Hong Kong back in the day. So I was, I, you know, very much in that mentality. And uh, I got tenure and I'm, I'm accelerating things, but I got tenure and my department chair at the time said, okay, now it's your turn to be department chair. I said, no, 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 wait a minute. I got all these grants. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. And uh, she said, no, everybody takes a turn and you're going to get elected anyway. So you have to do it. I said, okay, fine. So I took it on and I started to really love the administrative side of things because every day was a little bit different. Uh, sometimes every hour was a little bit different. It was very stimulating. And I, I, you know, I had 12 grad students at the time when I was supporting with the grants. And I loved like that interaction with lots of different projects and people. And it seemed to me that administration, I could do even more of that. I did a project where uh, my dean said to me, um, uh, hey, why don't you look at the enrollment in the college? Because I know you do forecasting work. So I took every single major and I modeled uh, a forecast for every major and said, 
I was off by a percent, percent and a half for each one of those. And he said, what else can you do? I said, I don't know, Carl, you ask me, what can I do? So he said, look, I'm going to create an associate dean position for you. You come into the dean's office and we'll give you things to do. So I said, okay, great. So I ended up moving to the dean's office. One of the first weeks, a faculty member calls me up and, and says, hey, I got this project. I need a computer and a grad student. And I said, okay, how much does a computer cost? And back then, a computer was $4,500. And the grad student was $4,500 at the time. So I needed, you know, the 9000 bucks. And I said to the dean, said, okay, wh wh where do I get this money? He says, well, uh, you can call the Baltimore Foundation and they may have some ideas. And I called them right away and I said, here's the project. And they directed me toward one of their funds. And I called that person up and that person said to me, can you come downtown? And I went downtown. He pulled the checkbook off the shelf, wrote me the check for 9000 bucks. I bring it into my dean and I say, hey, look what I got. <laughs> and he, he was amazed and he said, wow, can you do more of that? I said, sure, give me some projects. I'll go figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, I was hooked on administration at that point because it was just so much fun. And I, I got to say yes to people, especially faculty that were working hard and wanting to do really interesting things. Uh, so I, I, I was hooked. I, I never looked back at that point to uh, return to the faculty role. From there, I was appointed uh, uh, chief academic officer, one of the Penn State campuses. Uh, I stayed there for a while. Uh, from there, I went to a place called Philadelphia University. I went to Philadelphia University because it had a range of graduate programs. Uh, I'm originally from the Philadelphia area, so there was some attraction there about, you know, going to a city and area that I know pretty well. Uh, great place. Then the opportunity came to be uh, a VPA of a small private institution in New England that you may know about, uh, given its merger discussions, is uh, Mount Ida College. The president uh, at the time I had known from some of my interactions in Philadelphia, a great lady, really sharp, Carol Madison, uh, really knew what she was doing, had a business PhD, so ran it like a business. And a lot of my mentality today, uh, to be honest, comes from the way Car Carol ran things. I think she did uh, the way it should have been done. Uh, it should be done in a lot of ways where, you know, especially where presidents sit, where businesses. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't translate that, that into the business of higher ed and you think about higher ed approaches, but you also got to think about it as, as a long-term business operation. Um, then from there, I went to um, a place called Johnson Wales University up in, uh, up in New England, based in Providence. And it was a just different challenge. At the time, they were just in the planning stage, stages for building their culinary building, 85,000 square foot culinary building, LEED certified building. So I got to participate in that whole process, uh, amazing building, largest culinary education facility. I think it still is globally. I did not live in New England. My family, because of where my kids were in high school, 
it was just the timing was terrible to move them. So I used to commute back and forth on the weekends. When my kids started getting ready to graduate, it was less doable. So I started, again, looking and saying, okay, what's next? What don't I have? And I'm Catholic. Uh, I never would have thought being at a Catholic institution. Then I started looking around. I talked to some of my mentors and said, what do you think about going that route? And they said, well, a lot of uh, the religious are not being replaced by religious, but being replaced by by lay people. And there's there's a unique value proposition that the Catholic and religious institutions offer uh, in the sense of their value, uh, their values and kind of the, the milieu of the environment. So I started looking at them and I got the appointment at uh, Cardinal Stritch University in, in Milwaukee. My president retired after, uh, didn't retire, he went to another uh, position. Uh, after a couple of years there. And then I, I started looking because uh, I wanted something a little bit bigger than that. Their scale was, you know, 3000 students just above that. Um, and it, it, that felt good, but the scale, you, you didn't quite have that extra money to do extra projects there. So St. Leo came a calling through their search firm. I think it was AGB for St. Leo. And I had no idea who St. Leo was. And I said to the search firm representative, I said, who are they? I, I, I go to these Catholic uh, ACCU, Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and I, I've never heard of them. And they said, no, 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 you got to give them a look. I get, I get down here, and it worked out where I got a, a couple of interviews and then got down here, and I, I saw the campus, and there's more palm trees per square meter than any college or university I've ever had. We're in a hilly area just outside of Tampa alongside a lake. I mean, it is just, it's idyllic in terms of the the environment and the setting. It, it was irresistible. And then when I started finding out about its reach and capability across the country and the, the model that was cooking in my head about uh, mergers and acquisitions as a possibility. When I saw the bottom line on budget, I, th I said, now this place can do this. This has the scale and the capability to, to move in this direction and, and so forth. So it's an interesting model to, to work through, which means I'm always on the hustle for new board members. Indeed. Well, and Jeff, um, thank you for that. It is clear your journey has informed your approach as president um, it's given you lots of insight uh, in terms of how you approach the business side of your job. You spoke about kind of the business influences along the way. Um, and, and I get it. It makes sense. I think if there are listeners who are uh, thinking about their career path and their journey, um, can they reach out to you for, for questions? Is that uh, an open invitation? Stop sure. Right. Yep. Perfect. Sure, no questions. And and you know, for for anyone, I've worked for ten presidents. So I, I've worked for seven of the best presidents. Uh, they were great, all of them. Graham Spanier being one of those. Um. So yeah, uh, no question. I you know I think it's my obligation, Hirsch. I had somebody reach out this weekend, and I I said to her on LinkedIn. I said to her, uh, yeah, give my staff a call and she'll arrange a. A conversation because she asked the exact question you just asked. I said, I'm always willing to help, but 
it's on you to to make sure you arrange the time because I'm busy. I'm not gonna necessarily pay attention to that. Um, but I I can guarantee you in the minute that we're on the or minutes that we're on the call, I'm gonna be focused on the call. My obligation to help people that come after me for sure. Oh, that's excellent. Well, and and maybe to that end, peers of yours uh, may be thinking hard about the, let's bring it back, the merger and the acquisition side of the discussion. You know, what advice do you give to other leaders who right now may be looking to grow through acquisition or maybe looking to partner in some way? Um, you know, we talked about earlier with a, a university that's perhaps larger, maybe the funding situation is, is in a, a better place. Yeah, what advice or counsel would you provide uh, to those other leaders? I'll I'll do a a commercial too. So I've been invited to do a presentation this February at ACCNU in Washington, uh, assuming it's a live meeting uh, where President Marcotte and I will be there and uh, one or two of his staff, one or two of my staff will be there and we'll open the kimono, if you will, on the way it worked uh, this time and we'll answer questions pretty openly. Uh, I had a recent conversation with Ted Mitchell about doing the same at A's uh, as well. So there'll be opportunities like that. But I think I think the the important thing about it is, and and I'm in the SAC COC region, which uh, many people across the country know is one of the most rigorous regions in the in the country on accreditation standards, but also on mergers and acquisitions. They call them mergers and consolidations, where they have a very uh, lengthy time between signing of the acquisition. So legally, Marymount, California has donated all campus property programs, buildings, so forth. Uh, Regulatory, that's that's probably another eight months of time that we've got to go through or more uh, because of the way it works there. Not all the regions are like that. HLC middle states are, are a bit quicker than that. And I've heard uh, Nechi is a little bit quicker than that. Um, I think it suits us. I think it, it's good that we have the time to really think it through and, and make sure things are, are working right. But uh, I think some of the first conversations, if you're thinking about this model, is with your liaison on the accreditation side to find out kind of what the steps are. I, I would also, as I said earlier, get a good due diligence partner firm. If it's an outside firm or if you have the internal capability, they really need to be people that can navigate between the two presidents, between the two boards and and staffs. We're at a point where that firm has moved from due diligence, and I have hundreds of thousands of pages, believe it or not, of due diligence material in uh, our, our digital share space, and both institutions have access to that. We're now moving to project management uh, over the last couple of, of months, really last month or two, uh, into that modality. But you've got to make those shifts. You've got to think very broad and strategically about what the steps are. So until you sign that really definitive agreement that says this is a done deal. So right now we've put put our names on, on the line on this. There's a penalty of 
St. Leo walks away, a significant financial penalty. There's an even more significant financial penalty if Marymount walks away. So we've made a commitment to make this work. And SACCOC is aware of that, and they're, they've been supportive. But you've got to get to that point where you say, okay, uh, this is the no-go, go decision. And, and our board, you know, God love them. They, they ask great questions, and, and I think both boards uh, took their fiduciary responsibility very seriously, and we helped them. We got them set up for that, and, and I didn't provide them hundreds of thousands of pages, but we provided them a lot of reading material to get to the point where you know, they could make a, an informed decision. All this takes time. And, and you need to take that time and say, you know, is this right for the institution? Because what's going to happen is we're, we, our intention is to call Marymount, California will be St. Leo University, Los Angeles, Marymount campus. That is going to change the university, even though they're, they're tiny relative to our total population, where we'll be bicoastal, we'll be a Florida institution and a California institution. Think about that. Think about, you know, I, I read the LA Times now, in addition to the New York Times, you think about the the politics and culture in Florida versus the politics and culture in California. And I, I keep telling the senior team that you got to be able to live and operate in both worlds. You can't be too much on the Florida side or too much on the California side. That's a challenge. Jeff, the, well, you brought up so many good points. I think you've helped our listeners understand how much work is involved, um, how much support is needed. This is daunting. It's tough. I know we could probably talk for hours about the topic. I know you have a packed schedule, but let me first say thank you uh, for the time today. Um, and maybe I'll make an ask. I'd like to invite you back on the podcast whenever you want. Let's chat more. We'd love to pick your brain. Um, but but a heartfelt thank you from uh, EAB Office Hours uh, to be continued with Dr. Jeff Sinise. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Any any time. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we welcome another university president to the program, Dr. Paul LeBlanc. Under his leadership, Southern New Hampshire University has grown from a total enrollment of 3,000 to more than 180,000 students today, making Southern New Hampshire the largest nonprofit provider of online higher education in the country. Until next week, thank you for your time. <laughs>